to the podcast organized by Committee on Global Thought. I'm Vishakha Desai, Chair of the Committee on Global Thought at Columbia University. And it is my great pleasure to have a conversation with a dear friend, a great colleague, a member of the Committee on Global Thought, Professor Rosalind Morris. She's a professor of anthropology at Columbia University. Professor Morris is not only a stellar intellectual who has published on many, many different topics that often are about uh, the interstices of economic, social, and cultural realm, especially for social lives of people in the Global South. At the same time, she's also a, an artist, a writer, a filmmaker, and somebody who is often collaborating with distinguished artists from around the world and known for monographs as well as her creative works. Today, we're going to talk with Professor Morris about the new project that she has undertaken on behalf of the Committee on Global Thought, and that is called Unsettlement. Now, you might say, what does that word mean? And indeed, it's a word that tries to get at an issue, a concept, a living condition for those people who are living between worlds, at the border of settled worlds, and at the same time, constantly in the predicament of whether they're recognized as settled or desettled people. And the idea here is to, in fact, develop new concepts and new ideas. So, Professor Morris, welcome. And I want to begin by asking you that when you first thought of this very idea of a project, why did you feel this was so important at this point in time when everybody else is talking about migration and the emergency of dealing with migrants from one place to another? Thank you, Visheka. It's lovely to be here, lovely to be in conversation. I, um, I'm grateful for your formulation of the, the the task of the unsettlement project as being an issue, a concept, and a predicament. And I think that's um, a lovely encapsulation of the challenges of thinking this topic. And you've mentioned right from the start that it seems to be in some relationship to the notion of migration or migrancy, which is perhaps the dominant term of, of much contemporary um, thought about um, globality. And um, it would be, of course, silly if we were simply substituting one term on settlement for another migrancy. So I, I, maybe I'll just take a moment to try and explain what prompted this thought and to answer your question thereby. Um, partly, uh, if one looks at the numbers that are circulated today, numbers, of course, can be mesmerizing. They only tell us a little bit about the world. But if one starts with some numbers that are out there circulating and that animate and motivate a lot of critical work today, one might start with the UNHCR and their categories of forcibly displaced people. And if you were to open up that website, you would find that you have, um, or we have counted, 79.5 or close to 80 million people who are deemed to be forcibly displaced in the world. 26 million of those are called refugees. That is to say they are formally recognized by United Nation treaty-based um, um, 
organizations and, and states. Almost twice that many are people who are non-recognized folks called internally displaced people. 4.2 million deemed asylum seekers, uh, an astonishingly large percentage of the category of forcibly displaced people come from the very small nation of Venezuela. 3.6 million people are categorized as forcibly displaced Venezuelans. Well, that's already, you, uh, you know, a challenge, a task, and there are many institutions devoted to answering to that question. If we turn to the International Labor, Labor Organization and, and asked ourselves, you know, what, what are the numbers that, that they feel uh, are necessary to capture the number of people moving for work, you would have a kind of wide array of numbers, something like 250 million people who are deemed to be migrant laborers who are moving between states. If you were to include the categories of people who move within states, even simply within China alone, you would have a number like 230 million. So those numbers capture something. What they don't capture is the complicated relationship between the desire for mobility and the blockage or constriction or um, inertia that is that afflicts people who indeed do indeed move forced and unforced in ways that are very difficult to 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 differentiate but hundreds of millions perhaps you know close to 20% of the world's population of people who who inhabit zones that were not intended to be the sites of permanent residency but that have become permanent and this includes people who were originally entered into a category called the refugee, who became residents of camps that now have histories that stretch two and three generations deep. It includes the people, the vast numbers of people who inhabit informal settlements crusting around the major metropolitan centers of Africa and Asia and Latin America, where hundreds of millions of people live without access to the infrastructures of permanence. And as you said rightly, this is a, a predicament of living, of living in a way that both aspires to mobility and often includes movement, but that is also in some way suspended or blocked in its access to recognition, to right, to the material conditions of, of livability, of life. And this, so just on a quantitative level, it just strikes me that we need to find a way to encompass that group of people who are excluded from all of these other metrics. And what you're saying really kind of brings up an issue that on the one end of the spectrum are the migrants, as people call migrants, or forcibly or otherwise. On the other of the end of the spectrum are the immigrants who are desirous of going someplace and living somewhere else. In between is a group of people who desire or are forced, but the blockage for them to become part of something are enormous. Am I articulating that in the way you're thinking about it? Because it just occurred to me that the liminality of the situation or the long-term settlement and liminality at the same time is related to the blockage or the barriers that they encounter to be accepted in another part of the world. Exactly as you're saying that there is blockage, there are interruptions, there are refusals, security apparatuses, and also borders, border regimes 
that constantly introduce boundaries or limitations upon people's desired movements. But I think one of the important things to grasp is the long history that precedes this, but also that has been transformed recently. You know, many people will say, well, you know, people have always been moving and particularly if you think of Sub-Saharan Africa or you think of the Indian Ocean world or what have you, people have been moving. The, this new era of supposed uh, migrant crisis and so forth is merely an extension of that. But to say so is to precisely elide the historical forces that have interrupted these movements and, and that often capture people en route. I think this is another, they, they're capturing them en route to other forms of life and capturing them in ways that are often, I mean, they're not, it's not so much that they are enclosed, although there are really verily carceral regimes, if one thinks of the refugee camps in Bangladesh where Rohingyas, for example, reside, or one thinks of Palestinian refugee camps where people cannot move without uh, adducing various kinds of documents and so forth. There is kind of a carceral logic, but there's also this capture of people on the move in ways, whether it's poverty or lack of access to education or what have you, that Access to any infrastructure whatsoever. Exactly, exactly. But they, they capture people um, in such complicated ways while nonetheless, and I think this is important, this is what we want to get hold of, people invent forms of living in that captured state. And uh, sometimes incredibly inventive and enabling ways, sometimes ways that are barely the means of survival, um, rarely ways that are fulfilling all of people's ambitions and expectations. But uh, that blockage is absolutely important. Right. So I think that that also brings us to the way you're thinking about this particular project, that it is not just to see these people in the form of being victims, which they are in some ways, but also as agents of creating their own life. And one of the things that's very striking about the way you're articulating it is the role of imagination and the role of people pushing for their desires in ways, even when it's very constricted situation. So talk a little bit about the process by which you want to get at these very profound questions, but also the conditions that people live in. Yeah, the, you know, this project has, um... Perhaps it's um, had a slower gestation or maturation than was originally hoped for all sorts of reasons. Of course, we're now in the middle of a pandemic and that introduces its own limitations. But um, we restarted this project this year after a brief hiatus. We, we began with a kind of exploration of concepts with the recognition that even at the terminological level, even at the level of distinguishing between, for example, voluntary and involuntary movement, we needed to think differently. Um, restarting the project this year, we are using three different formats to approach what you describe as the dimension of imagination. We are, we are engaging scholars from around the world first. We're asking how these questions appear in different sites, in different traditions, which have different histories, of migrancy and of other kinds of movement. Um, and we're working with scholars in a collaborative way to grasp or to, to, to learn what these questions look like in, in different sites and in different historical conditions. Um, we're also uh, engaging journalists who are um, in a very immediate way 
responding to the phenomena as they appear under different circumstances, shaped also by contingent events like pandemic, like climate-related catastrophe and so forth, which generates new questions and not simply immediate needs. Um, and then we're working with artists who are engaging these issues around the world uh, with, the, with the very strong sense that um, artists are thinking differently using different techniques, but also um, developing different languages, for lack of a better word, developing different languages with which to bring to expression what are still inchoate questions and problems. And this is, I mean, the opportunity for learning with artists by virtue of this mode of making. And um, as I say, bringing to expression inchoate thought is a really constitutive part of the project. Um, and I hope one that will also have a pedagogical function too. That is to say, will allow us to learn how to reach out to other kinds of audiences, constituencies, um, thinkers uh, in ways that, you know, ordinary scholarly discourse doesn't always do. In a way, this is an ideal Committee on Global Thought project because we often try to say that we really want to learn with the world, about the world, from the world. And that that world is not just the academic versus non-academic, but also different kinds of people. And it occurs to me that in a proper Greek term, it actually combines the thinking, the doing, and the making. And all three parts coming together to create new forms of knowledge. As you develop this project, what are the things that are coming up for you as key questions that really need to be thought through further? What are you learning as we go forward? Um, well, one could, one, we could talk for a long time about that. Uh, let me maybe just share a few moments from the conversations we've had in recent months. Um, as I said, one of our major, one of the major, I think, uh, barriers to moving beyond the ways in which migrant discourse or migrancy discourse has operated is the radical opposition between voluntary and involuntary movement, which links to explanations of, um, or, or, or causal explanations. Uh, and the granting of legitimacy to for some rationales as opposed to others. But in a recent, in a, an early event this year with uh, journalists uh, from around the world, our Bangladeshi colleague, uh, Shahidul Alam, said something that moved me greatly and that I thought was something to carry forward. He had described a young migrant whom he had met oh, 40, 50 years ago almost now. And he, he described that young man as wanting to become different from the person that he was born as. And Shahidul spoke about this ambition to transform one's life history and one's future life history as something that is foreclosed to the great number of impoverished people of the world. Whereas the presumption of upward mobility and self-transformation is a valorized um, uh, dimension of upper class or upper middle class life. And I think he made, he allowed us to understand the distinction, not as a, the distinction in, in even at the level of the motive for self-transformation as something that operates that boundary between the voluntary and the involuntary. 
And um, this is one of those moments where something opened that allowed us to problematize a category that has been, you know, not simply conceptually wrong, but that has been used as an alibi to differentiate the legitimacy of people's uh, claims on movement, their rights of recognition, access to resources, and so forth. So that would be one example. I think another big conceptual problem that has arisen in our conversation with our African colleagues has to do with the very concept of the right of mobility itself. And I have been operating within this project with the assumption that the concept of mobility, if it is to be understood as a right, must include both the right to move and the right to not be moved if one does not wish to be. And this is extremely important in the history of uh, colonized spaces. Mm -hmm where, and I work in South Africa, where forcible movement and forcible removal is a kind of constitutive feature of colonial and apartheid governance. And I have always assumed that this right to not be moved, if one doesn't want to, it has to be an axiom of a just response to the problems facing us. Uh, but in that conversation with our African colleagues, the question of what climate change will mean for that understanding of right uh, arose and as a task for thinking, as a task for ethical thinking, not as something to which we could offer an easy response, but precisely in that space with that history confronting what is affecting everything from the agricultural worlds to the coastal regions, it became clear that if we're going to go forward with an understanding of unsettlement, which will be increasingly the predicament of larger and larger numbers of people in the world, these two things, the exigencies of climate change and responding justly, and a notion of right that is not limited simply to upward mobility, have to be brought into relationship. So that would be one of the things, an example of the kind of thinking that came out of this conversation. I mean, I think that right there, it seems to me that almost all conversations around climate migration or migration due to the climate crisis has always been about what are we going to do rather than what is it this notion of right not to be moved requires very different way of looking at that issue then they're going to move what are we going to do now so it's as if they're the pawns in this larger climate crisis picture rather than agency that they would have and i think that idea of agency for people to describe, to imagine, to live in the life that they want to, either to move or not to move, seems to me is a really big part of how one needs to think about this issue. Um, I mean, I would even go a little bit further than that because, as I said, it's because it became clear that this was a task for thinking, right. and that we would have to put that right to not be moved in some kind of question. But we also, you know, have inherited this relatively easy opposition between sort of settled and by this we mean largely urban existence and something else. And we also have this extraordinary uh, set of um, experiences, narrations, self-exemplifications from places where people live with changing environments. I'm thinking of, you know, people in the Irrawaddy and Bang uh, Delta and the in the, in the delta of, of, um, of yeah. Bangladesh as well, where people live with rising and receding waters, 
but this is because of the forms of existence they have produced that that in which settlement itself is more complicated than than the kind of uh, infrastructurally rooted stabilized right. cement, cemented one could say mode of urban existence yes. so i mean if as you go out forward obviously you're in the thick of this but towards the beginning of a new iteration of the conversation. If you look out, maybe it's too soon to tell and we'll have to bring you back and we'll do another podcast. But as you look out, if you had your druthers, where, where do you go with this? What, what would be your biggest um, desire, if you will, out of the project? You know, I think that's a very hard question to answer, partly because we're in the very early stages and we're just learning what questions are arising in different places, but also um, one doesn't know where thought goes. If, you want, if you're committed, and as, as a research university must be committed right. to the cultivation of experimental thinking that doesn't yet have an outlet. My hope is that if we're rigorous enough, sensitive enough, responsive enough, if we can teach ourselves to learn from others, that the ideas that will come out of this, the ways of thinking and making that will come out of this, will seem to others to have uses that I can't even imagine. And that would be, of course, that would be thrilling, right? If, if, if we could, in, in our conversations, think freely enough to 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 change the terms of our of our, our of our relationships to these problems and others could see utility in that then that would be a fantastic thing it's not going to be my role right um, and maybe it won't be the role of any of us but that is that is the function of a research university and that is what that's the kind of treasure that we get to nourish and cultivate and extend in these conversations At the very least it's a deconflation of things yeah. that otherwise get conflated for simplistic or policy exigencies. Yes. If that much can happen, then already that would be amazing, you know? I um, like that formulation, that which can happen. Right. <laughs> good. Right. Um, well, I must say that I really look forward to learning in all of its dimensions which encompasses not just the artistic, not just the journalistic, not just the intellectual, but also regionally specific and transnational so that we really try to complicate even the idea of globality in the process that then really says that I often like to say that global is always relational. It matters what the context is and then look at the issues of global, local, national, transnational, whatever it may be, but that it is that idea of complicating the question that is the very least we could do in an academic setting. So thank you very, very much. And I look forward to having this conversation again towards the end of the project and see what we have learned. Thanks again for joining us. Thank you, Vizeka, that was lovely to speak to you. Thank you.